0: Hi guys. I know you love a riveting debate and I've got one for you. Here's me up against Adam Mossov. He's a professor at George Mason University and an expert on intellectual property, unlike yours truly, just a amateur. It's really funny how this debate came about because I don't know if you guys know, but I was meant to be doing a, a small tour of Eastern Europe on the Free Market Roadshow. I had eight speaking dates, but coronavirus destroyed my ascent to fame as a public intellectual. But one of the events, American University in Bulgaria was moved online and my original interlocutor pulled out for some reason. I'm not really sure why. So they went to find someone to replace him, and they got Adam Mossov, who's like a complete expert on this topic, and uh, which is really funny because, well, I'm not. I'm mo- but I set it up for the debate. I got on the phone to Stephen Kinsella, and I had a chat with him for a half an hour. He was really, really helpful, and he sent me to what to read. When I told him who I was debating, he was like, You're debating Adam Masoff? (laughs) I think you really like the debate. I'm including it here as a bonus episode. So that would make it episode 154 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. Enjoy. Oh, and by the way, I made a YouTube playlist called Anthony Samroff Debates if you want to see all of the debates that I've been involved in.
1: Um, Hi, folks. Thank you for tuning into our webinar about intellectual property and the COVID vaccine. Uh, My name is Ilya Levine. I'm an assistant professor at the Department of Political Science and European Studies at the American University in Bulgaria. Uh, This webinar is part of my university's water cooler conversation series, which we started this semester after we switched to online classes. Um, partly we did this because it's another way of maintaining connections within the AEBG community. Um, but also we did this because uh, it's the, the, these um, webinars have been a, a means of providing our students, our alumni, and others with access to some expert multidisciplinary views on the COVID crisis, which is the the defining crisis of the present moment. Uh, The series has, I think, been pretty successful. Uh, When my uh, department, the politics department, had um, their webinar, we ended up getting close to 5,000 views in total, uh, which is pretty good considering that this is academics talking and answering questions for an hour. And this is on the internet where people are one or two clicks away from uh, cat videos and videos of drunk people hurting themselves. That's what we're competing with. So pretty good, I think. I think it reflects well on our um, AUBG community. I think it reflects a real interest in intelligent, informed, reasonable discussion. Uh, I think there's perhaps not quite enough of it these days. Um, particularly when I look at cable news. Now, up to now, all of the webinar participants have been members of our faculty. Uh, Today, we're doing something different. Um, First of all, today, it's a debate. That's a little bit different. Secondly, we have two very interesting uh, speakers from outside of the American University. Uh, They are associated with the Free Market Roadshow. So, first of all, my thanks to the Free Market Roadshow and to the Uh, Austrian Economics Center for supporting this event and uh, connecting us with Adam and Anthony. Um, I'm also grateful to Luca for handling the IT side of things and I'm grateful to our Dean Robert White who organized this whole thing despite having uh, more, more, much, much more than enough on his plate already. Um, Most of all, of course, I'm grateful to our two speakers. Uh, one of them is Anthony Samaroff. He's a Scottish uh, podcaster and blogger and a kind of anti-Andrew Yang, as far as I can tell. Um, having authored the book uh, Universal Basic Income for and against, uh, Anthony argues against, and having also earlier this year when uh, people were still having uh, live events, I mean, also earlier this year, participated in a Soho debate on uh, automation and what that will do uh, to the labor labor market um, on whether uh, the robots are going to take our jobs Anthony uh, was arguing the optimistic side by the way it's on YouTube I watched already watched some of it today it's a it's an interesting debate um, it's an example of that kind of civil, thoughtful, rational, well-informed discussion that I think we really need. I think both participants in that debate are great. Uh, Anthony is a critic of intellectual property. Um, he will be debating Adam Mossoff, who is a professor of law at George Mason University. Uh, professor Mossoff's scholarship has been relied on by the United States Supreme Court and by US federal agencies. He's also testified before the US Senate and the House of Representatives on intellectual property legislation. Adam has also uh, written for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Forbes, and other outlets. Uh, In addition, because that's not enough, he is a senior fellow and chair of the Forum for Intellectual Property at the Hudson Institute. I actually like the Hudson Institute. They do good work on Central Asian politics. Um, He is a member of the Board of Directors uh, of the Center for Intellectual Property Understanding and a co-chair of the Technology Innovation and Intellectual Property Program at the Classical Liberal Institute, and he is a supporter of intellectual property rights. So the topic today is, do intellectual property rights facilitate or impede the development of a COVID-19 vaccine? Uh, We're going to follow this format where Adam will speak for 10 minutes. Anthony will then speak for 10 minutes, Adam gets a five minute reply, Anthony gets a five minute reply, and then we will take questions from the audience. Uh, If you have questions, please type them um, on the Facebook page. That's, uh, I guess, uh, broadcasting uh, broadcasting the debate. Uh, Please include the names of the people to whom you are asking the question. Uh, now, I guess I could talk about how very important uh, the COVID vaccine is and how the COVID crisis is a very big deal, but um, considering how we're doing this debate, I think we already know, right? So uh, perhaps it might be better if we just start with Adam talking for 10 minutes um, and, uh, when you have one minute left, I'm going to start waving this sign. By cam, and, uh, I will, if you go over time, I will absolutely bust in there. Like the Kool-Aid man just interrupting everything, but away, away you go, please. Thank you, Ilya,
2: and thank you to uh, you know the, the free market roadshow and to the Austrian Economic Center and to the, of course the American University in, in Bulgaria uh, for inviting me uh, to participate in this great uh, discussion. I prefer to think of it as a discussion with Anthony because uh, it's going it's it's uh, it's among for among friends here and uh, who we agree on foundational principles and so and we have this interesting I think disagreement as to how these foundational principles are applied ultimately. Now, of course, as Ilya mentioned, right. We are in the course of, uh, of a massive pandemic today, um, one that we, one unlike we haven't seen for about 100 years. I, the, the frame of reference is the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. Um, and uh, uh, it's very clear, however, that the pandemic uh, today with, uh, with the coronavirus is not going to be a repeat of the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. Um, and that is because an entire industry that now exists that didn't exist in 1918, the biotech and biopharmaceutical industry, has risen up in response and deployed incredible uh, amount of productive labor and man hours in terms of coming up with solutions and uh, treatments for this, for this new, um, for this new uh, oh, I apologize for that. Um, for this new uh, virus that we are experiencing. Just to give you a sense of what we've seen deployed in the the healthcare market in just the past 16 weeks, more than 400 unique drug programs have been launched, uh, testing uh, 101 experimental vaccines uh, with 138 programs specifically directed at the uh, um, COVID-19 virus. Um, Private sector investments are responsible for more than 90% of vaccines and treatments and development uh, to address the COVID-19. And uh, of course, uh, more than 70% of this R&D is being undertaken, in fact, by small companies. Now, all of this massive investment, billions of dollars, tens of thousands of of labor hours uh, of scientists, researchers, uh, business persons, is all made possible by property rights. The property rights that facilitate Commercial exchanges in the marketplace, um, what is called licensing in intellectual property context. Now, of course, when I'm specifically these property rights are patents, which are property rights and new inventions and discoveries. And like all property rights, patents secure the fruits of productive labors. In in this instance, of innovators, of scientists, of researchers. Um, They incentivize productive labor to create new values in the first place, like all property rights do. And in fact, the biopharmaceutical industry is an incredible example of this. Over $149 billion was invested by the private uh, companies in R&D and new drugs, tests and ultimately vaccines in 2019 alone. Um, studies show that on average for each successful drug that makes it to the healthcare market, there's more than $2.6 billion in research and development that has occurred over 10 to 15 years on average that backs up that, that new drug. I mean, that's that, that sunk cost that they have engaged in um, that they need to recoup in order to remain in business. Um, and in fact, one drug on the market represents on average up to 10,000 original molecules that began to be investigated in the basic research by researchers at uh, companies like Pfizer and Merck and others, as well as in universities. And uh, studies show only one in four drugs actually recoup this original R&D investment and make profit to continue to fund ongoing R&D. In fact, all of this makes clear, I want to make clear, right, that R&D in the biopharmaceutical industry is extremely risky, it's extremely time intensive, it's extremely labor intensive, and occurs over the long run. It's been analogized for many years to prospecting for oil, right? Very risky, uh, high upfront expenditures, and lots of failures, lots of failures. Um, And more importantly, though, because you could incentivize those types of activities with other types of legal mechanisms that have existed through the years and, and through most of human history until we had a free market. Um, you could incentivize them through prizes and through, uh, through patronage and through tax subsidies and things of this sort. But those types of alternative mechanisms don't do what ultimately patents achieve, which is patents actually provide our property rights so that they facilitate and provide a platform for investment and ongoing innovative development in the marketplace between individuals who are acting on the basis of these property rights, entering into commercial exchanges, embracing the division of labor that facilitates and grows a flourishing innovation economy and ultimately is the basis for a free society, right? Now, in my opening remarks today, um, I'm just going to quickly give kind of an overview of kind of the historical, legal, and kind of ethical context for intellectual property that I think will then provide a nice funnel for. On, you know, the responses that Antony and I will have and the, and the questions that we'll get from the audience. Um, and I, I think it's important just to kind of set this broader context because I found um, in discussions with my fellow advocates for the free market and advocates for classical liberalism and laissez-faire capitalism that sometimes there's a lot of confusions about what is intellectual property and particularly what are patents. Now, I just want to start and note at the outset that um, Economic studies and historical studies continually show repeatedly um, that the same principle that we all recognize for property rights in other contexts, whether personal property or property in land or property in corporations and things of this sort, um, applies for patents. Um, this, the, um, this material actually was wonderfully uh, um, uh, combined in a very short essay called Patents and the Wealth of Nations by a Stanford political scientist. His name is Steve Haber. I highly recommend it. You can find it on the internet at the ssrn.com website. If you just Google his name though, Stephen Haber, Patents and the Wealth of Nations, he, re- he just does a quick survey in 20 pages of all of the studies and economic studies that have shown this. Now this isn't surprising. Uh, the protection of property rights under the rule of law We have long recognized um, um, among us, right, that this is the foundation for flourishing free markets, for growing innovation economies, rising standards of living, Um, and these general correlations that have been recognized for property rights and land, and in other types of assets, right, have been recognized in patents as well. You have the exact same correlations over history, between countries and between uh, innovation economies, advanced innovation economies and freer economies like the United States has been for many years, um, uh, in, until recently, <laughs> uh, and, uh, um, and, uh, and 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 co- as comparison to other countries as well. Now, the historical point here is e- is equally important, right? So in principle, right, as an historical uh, recognition, uh, point and as a just a a point of ethical theory, right? You can recognize that patents as property rights secure the fruits of productive labors of innovators, right? In the same way that a property right in land, what we call in the law, real estate, secures the fruits of productive labors of a farmer in the 17th century, or a property right in a factory secured the fruits of productive labors of an industrialist in the 19th century. Now you can, you can see how this works in the same way. A farmer engages in that same upfront expenditures of effort and productive labor and creating a new value. Farmers spend about a year, right? They, they till the soil, they, they fertilize the soil, they plant their seeds, they husband the crops, they reap the crops. This is a lot of activity over a span of a long time. Um, and they reap their crops. And then they have a property right in their crops, so then they can enter into market transactions with wholesalers and retailers to more efficiently distribute their crops in the marketplace, reap the benefits, and continue doing what they're doing. This is what Adam Smith recognized in 1776 in The Wealth of Nations, that division of labor specialization is the key to flourishing free markets and flourishing innovation economies more generally. So... um, So, and and the same principle continues and is recognized in the 19th century, right? The industrialist spends a long time, sometimes up to a year or even more, setting up their what we now call a value chain, the whole uh, supply chain, distribution chain, retail uh, chain, aspects of their manufacturing processes, building their factories, getting all the machines, entering into all of these complex transactions. This is why your iPhone doesn't say built in uh, Northern California. It says, or Cupertino, California. It says, designed in Cupertino, California, because it's actually built in by Foxconn in China through transactions in the marketplace. And industrials are able to engage this because they have property rights, and they and the property rights secure to them the fruits of these productive labors, and therefore they are able to engage in market transactions and sell their products like their iPhones and other things in the marketplace. And you saw this in the nineteenth century, in 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 in, in just uh, you know numerous examples, innovators creating new products and entering into the marketplace with them. So, Cyrus McCormick's invention of the first mechanical reaper, um, Eli Whitney's invention of the first cotton gin, which vastly expanded farm production. Um, and made it possible for people to work in the growing factories and no longer work on farms. Isaac Singer and the other, and Elias Howe's inventions of the sewing machine, and Samuel Morse's invention of the electromagnetic telegraph. Um, You know, uh, Thomas Thomas Edison's inventions, of course, of the electrical light bulb and electrical distribution systems and motion pictures and things of this sort. So ultimately, the point here is that the, the same principle we recognize for real property it provides the same legal protection and as a result of that provides the same economic benefits. Right. And this is ultimately the point to, to to recognize is that property, is simply a moral and a legal concept. It's an abstraction, right? Property refers to kind of the valuable assets created through human ingenuity and productive labor. And what property rights secure in society is a sphere of liberty in which one can control how one uses the valuable assets that one has created through one's productive labor, like trading with others and contracts, right? In fact, you can't have contracts without property rights. Um, This is a, a principle I teach to my students in my first year property course every year. Um, And so through human history, this concept of something to control and use and benefit from one's valuable labors, right, has been expanded as the range and scope of human value creation has expanded as well, right? So of course, you know, in, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, there were just personal goods. First, those were actually the very first property rights were in personal goods. Then it was expanded to include land as we started to farm and create cities. Then it was expanded to include commercial activities and more advanced complex commercial mechanisms and institutions like corporations and even more advanced uh, commercial arrangements like multinational corporations and assets and and credit and all of the things that we now benefit from in our advanced commercial societies. This value creation is based on innovations and creative labors, right? Is the kind of innovations and creative labors that identified in the, the 19th century innovators, Cyrus McCormick's Mechanized Reaper and Thomas Edison's light bulb, right? And so you it's unsurprising that as you see societies protect property rights, right, you see explosions in free markets and economic growth and flourishing societies in the 19th century, and the full protection of new property rights and the creation of new values includes the protection of the property rights in the inventions and creative works that underlie the, uh, the use of even things like land, right? The, so the, the, as I mentioned, the mechanized reaper and the tractor and all of these things go into What makes possible for us to efficiently uh, uh, convert what was once fallow useless land into a value for human life. And this legal and market framework in the biotech industry is what's made it possible, not just for the investments to create new tests, drugs, and vaccines for the coronavirus, but it's also Possible that makes possible the creation of market mechanisms, the contracts, licenses, and other commercial arrangements that will ultimately put these new innovations into the hands of patients and other individuals throughout the world. So, thank you, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what Anthony has to say and continuing our discussion.
1: Uh, thank you, Adam. It's you don't hear and you don't see a lot of commentary that's sympathetic towards pharmaceutical companies. I feel like they're, they they tend to be painted as 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 a villain. Yeah. Um, Anthony, let's hear from you.
0: Thank you, it's a great honour to be invited and thanks, uh, Adam, for putting your jukes up today um, to give me a little bit of an intellectual stretch, right? So, a long time ago in America, whenever someone tried to fly a plane, the Wright brothers took them to court and they won, uh, and that put a stop to that. But in the meantime, the Wright brothers themselves had stopped developing aeroplanes. And why was that? Because they were spending all of their time in court instead. Only in 1917, when the First World War broke out, America realized that the Germans and the British had really good air forces. Even the Turks had a great air force. uh, And the USA was lagging behind. So FDR, not a popular president amongst libertarians. Admittedly, he was then the uh, assistant secretary of state for the Navy. He introduced a compulsory patent pool, And then between 1917 and 1975, there were effectively no patents on aviation in the United States. You could still file a patent and they, they might even grant you the patent, but you couldn't actually stop any other Air, um aviation company firm copying your your innovations. So suddenly the aviation industry in America flourished. So there was patents in aviation between 1903 and 1917, no aviation, and then no patents between 1917 and 1975. And America grew to have the best aviation industry in the world. Okay, so well, intellectual property help or hinder the development of a COVID-19 vaccine? It's kind of a hypothetical question, but there's some reasons to believe that it will stand as an impediment. So if we, economists like starting with them, desert island analogies. So before we get into the specifics of the pharmaceutical industry, let's just imagine we're in the state of nature and we have access to our hands and our heads and whatever we want to put together, we can put together. If I see someone creating a fishing net for the first time, I can try and replicate making the fishing net. Or I can, if I can't figure it out, I can go over and talk to him and ask him to show me. And he might even charge me Teach me how to make the fishing net, right? But once I know how to make one, I can sell that fishing net on to someone else, some some other poor sucker who doesn't know how to make one, right? Does the guy who originally taught me how to make the fishing net have the right to say, whoa, 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 there. I got here first. No one else can make a fishing net, right? And what if the next day the guy who I taught or sold my fishing net to has improved on the design, and he wants to market his new advanced fishing nets. Does that first guy have to go? Well, actually, I think you'll find uh, I, I invented the basis for your innovation on the fishing net, and so I'm going to have to stop you there by force. Should they have to ask for permission to innovate? Because if they do, that sounds like a pretty strange way to encourage innovation. So. In the world where the third, a third party, namely the government, interferes with our right to improve on the designs of other people, by force, if necessary, are we more likely to see medical progress or less likely to see that? So, when it, I'd just like to state that the, the, the burden of proof is on uh, Professor Mossov to argue for that the imposition of a third party. Um, is is um, is going to speed up progress because as we know, usually when the government get involved, it slows things down. Um, so, um, and on on the point on property rights, um, Adam would like to define intellectual property as a. Completely as a, completely the same kind of property rights as the other ones we recognise, but that but the, he misses the important distinction, which is if you own the land, I can own the land. If you own the factory, I can own the factory. Um, a pen can be property, but how to make a pen is just ideas. Um, it doesn't come under the same constraints because it's not non-excludable. So. Um, Professor Mossov says that his his main argument is the massive investment that is put into pharmaceuticals is only made possible by intellectual property rights. And that that is a claim which he will require to prove, because if you look at the period that he's talking about, the state has massively grown. And most free market oriented people think we would have much more wealth and much more growth if the state hadn't grown in the last hundred years. Or, you know, when America first started, it was a protectionist nation and people like Noam Chomsky like to say America was built on protectionism. We like to think that America would have been even more rich if it didn't have those tariffs and subsidies. So. To say that that we had intellectual property rights and that caused this innovation is very tenuous for reasons that I want to expand on. Um, For one thing, a lot of companies just won't enter the race because they're too scared that at the last minute, they'll, they'll throw tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars at something and they'll be beaten just by a few weeks by a competitor. Second, you know, imagine that I'm slaving away somewhere in Bangalore, India and my team come across a new vaccine and we're just about to administer it in India. And then we find out that a Russian uh, group filed the patent a week before, and we're not allowed to administer our own treatment. Right. So, so that is patently absurd. One of us had to get that joke in, so I'm sure Adam's heard that a million times. right? For another thing, intellectual property rights may already be stopping them from accessing and building upon research that's already been done for others. It can be impossible to access or it can be or the royalties can be prohibitive. And what about the combinations of different innovations? So the more elements there are to a treatment, The drug itself, the vehicle of delivery, the binding agent and what have you, the more a company will have to run around asking everyone involved and permission to combine, to to create their new treatment. Patents are clearly a grease in the gears of the market. They're slowing down innovation and copyrights can also infringe upon people's ability to quickly published research. So a lot of people do think that the pharmaceutical industry gives the best case for patents because bringing a new drug to market can cost up to $800 million. And because of the lengthy gap between discovering something and being able to market it, sometimes the monopoly effectively lasts for only 12 years, right? So they need a profit motive. But the thing is that regulatory system for approving drugs is so onerous and uh, Mary Ruhr, who I've um, had on my show and kindly contributed a chapter to to a book that I'm writing on healthcare reform, um, she wrote a book called Death by Regulation on how over the top these controls have become and how people die because of them. So when uh, Dr. Mossoff says that um, only a quarter of drugs and make a profit, that's partly because the government basically intervenes to hobble the pharmaceutical industry, and then they throw them a pair of crutches, which we call intellectual property, a patent, and say, aren't you glad that you can walk again? Um, Mary Ruer is of the opinion if the time that it took to approve a drug hadn't gone from seven years to 17 years, which it has. Uh, there would be no such need for these patents. So so that's an argument for getting government out of the way and not for patents, right? On the other hand, right, the, how much time have I got?
1: Sorry. Oh, uh, you've got another minute or three oh, if, if, if you take 12 like Adam.
0: Okay, well, I'll take 12. So, so basically, drug prices are way more expensive in America about over twice as other 19 industrial nations. And the most important factor allowing manufacturers to set high drug prices was market exclusivity. And uh so people have less access to drugs because of patents. And I just want to say a few silly things about the way the patent system actually works. Um, So if you if you look at um, uh, a lot of patents or ba- corporations can basically do what is called evergreening or repatenting of their products by just tweaking them slightly. The manufacturer of PreloSec, um, mm-hmm. a heartburn re- remedy, managed to extend their patent by getting a second patent on the pill's coating. and um, This thing kind of happens all the time. A study said that between 2000 and 2015, at least 74% of the drugs associated with new patents in the FDA's records were not new drugs. They were just different versions of existing ones. So companies can then withdraw the original drugs forcing physicians to issue the new, more expensive one. So if anything, the patent laws are deterring innovation by incentivizing companies to fiddle around with already existing treatments so that they can evergreen them rather than developing new ones. In fact, only 238 of 1,035 drugs approved by the FDA between 1989 and 2000 contain new active ingredients um, that were given. all of this stuff costs tons and tons of money right not only uh, uh, not only that but patents lobbyists have worked long and hard in the pharmaceutical um, industry to extend what can be patented and shouldn't these um, companies be spending money on researching drugs rather than lobbying the government it represents a massive waste within the system so In conclusion, it's merely an assumption to say that high expectations of profits due to monopolies lead to more pharmaceutical research and consequently more drugs. It's it's as silly to assume as to assume we're richer because government got bigger over the last 100 years. The effect could be the complete opposite since monopolies very rarely innovate and less push to. And what is a patent but a monopoly right granted by the government. There's very compelling reasons to think that um, they are stultifying innovation rather than contributing to it. Uh, Thank you.
1: Uh, Adam,
2: five minutes response all right great yes thank you so um so a- anthony made some really great points um and uh and um i'd be remiss if i didn't uh respond to uh, just a, a couple of the historical points and and, and um and economic points just because that tends to be an area i do a lot of my work in sure. so um the aviation patent example which is uh, which is one often hears um it, it, in this conventional wisdom what he repeated i mean it's you find it in textbooks it's in my it's in like it's in my patent textbook that i use in my patent law class it's actually false um there's a really great article that was written, um, that was uh, released uh, uh, in 2018 called The Myth of the Early Aviation Patent Holdup, in which uh, scholar Ron Katz-Nelson discovered that um, FDR and other government regulatory officials who wanted to, who take these patents uh, during, during World War I, um, created this story of this holdup, um, created the story of, this, of the, this diminishing ability to innovate as a way to justify the government stepping in and eviscerating these property rights and taking over the, uh, the aviation industry for all intents and purposes for several years. And that he actually shows in data that actually innovation was, was proceeding to pace. There was incredible amounts of productive activity. Um, and the United States led the world in aviation technology as Anthony rightly recognized. Um, and in fact, um, jet engines and all the follow-on technology that made aviation what it is today um, and hopefully we can enjoy the benefits of it soon again um, we'll, uh, we're all we're all proud we're all secure to their innovators as the property rights that they that they developed um, I would also recommend him updating his, his 800 million dollar R&D point uh, that uh, this the, the 2.6 billion number was from a, a study by economists at Tufts University um, that was released about a year and a half ago, um, but he's certainly right that regulations are a source of a lot of problems. I agree with him. The FDA is, a, is it shouldn't exist. It's it's a it's a it's a blockade. Um, <clears throat> but regulations are also a source of a lot of problems. Not the patent system of the things that he's talked about. The drug prices are high in the United States not because of the patent system um, at all. It's because the rest of the world has has nationalized healthcare systems and the governments through their course of power forced the force the uh, biopharmaceutical companies companies to sell their products in those countries at less of a price. And so you have, so the, the U.S. is the last country in the world where they can essentially, I mean, it's not really true, I mean, over 50% of healthcare in the U.S. is still purchased by state and federal governments, but where they can still set their prices and they have to recoup their massive investments in the first place. And so this is the place where we have to do it. I mean, this is the classic public choice story told on an international scale. You know, the, the, Brit, the British politician or the Scottish politician is accountable to Scottish voters. So they, are, they don't, they, so they, they're not accountable to U.S. voters, so they tell the U.S., companies that are innovating and creating these products. Well, you have to sell your product at a a, a cost where you can't recoup your investment. Well, they're willing to sell it anyway, because some money is better than none. And then they just, raise their prices the only place they can still raise them in the United States. Um, so this isn't the patent problem. This is actually uh, a, a problem of, inter, of national healthcare systems or uh, regulations through the FDA and the other types of things that, that Anthony identified. Um, but I do wanna uh, to, 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 to hit back on a more fundamental point about the uh, burden of proof point, right? Because um, I, I, Cause I wanted to get this out there and I wanna repeat it again that the same exact statistical correlations <clears throat> that we identify with all property rights, including land, because there's one cannot find a statistical study that proves as a matter of causation, economically or statistically or otherwise, that property rights and land lead to economic development. It's just, it's a, we recognize it as a principle of histo- uh, through our knowledge of history and our knowledge of political principles and of economic principles more generally. And they, this correlation we see again occurring and, occurring and occurring in countries that have property rights have economic growth, have freedom, um, and the same, po- the same, uh, the exact same correlations exist for patents because patents are not monopolies; they're property rights. I mean, I recognize that, you know, this, that patents grew out of monopolies, but guess what? R- property rights in land were originally monopoly grants by the state. Um, all, it, all legal rights originally grew out of monopoly grants by the state, um, and I really want to hit on this: that property is this this concept that encompasses the creation of all valuable labors. You have different types of protections for different types of property, whether it's air, land, whether it's in money, whether it's in credit, whether it's in um, uh, telecommunication ways. And and so of course you have different types of protections because you have different types of values in those assets and how they're used. Um, lastly, there is actually direct evidence of immediate uh, 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 causal connections between recognizing property rights and innovation and, and economic growth and growth of industries. And the biotech industry is one of those examples. The United States took the lead among all the world in 1980 with the U.S. Supreme Court called Diamond v. Chakrabarty, where the United States Supreme Court said genetically modified organisms and other byproducts of the uh, the nascent biotech industry are patentable. And, And immediately venture capitalists and others started investing money and you had this explosive growth and innovation. Um, And all of the byproducts of this that have benefited everyone and have benefited the innovators themselves through this. This is the same correlations you expected. we saw in the United States, where the United States government said, we'll protect people and their property rights. And you had explosive growth in the 19th century. The the real hockey stick graph that everyone really should care about, uh, which is the incredible impact that freedom and property rights have had on human life generally. Um, And patents were very much part of that story as property rights. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you, Adam. You you clearly know your audience taking a swing at FDR at the beginning. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how Anthony responds.
2: I, think- <laughs> I wasn't expecting to hear FDR and
0: Chomsky being invoked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, I, sorry, sorry to compare. <laughs> <laughs> <Adam>. That's okay. <laughs> right, okay. So I, I guess I have to come back to my fundamental points. Um before I do that, the chief scientific officer at Bristol Myers Squibb, Peter Ring, was told the New York Times that there were 50 proteins possibly involved in cancer and that the company was not working on them because the patent holders either would not allow or were demanding unreasonable royalties. How widespread is this sort of thing, right? Um, fundamentally, I didn't really hear an answer to my sort of net analogy which was like a lot of companies aren't going to enter the race because they're too scared that they'll throw hundreds of millions of dollars at something only be, to be beaten by someone else and what how, how can someone say that they don't have the right to administer i know we're going slightly off the covid point when, but i think i think it's okay because we, we what we're discussing here is the general principle And mm-hmm. um, uh, the Intellectual property rights, as per my example, on cancer may already be stopping people from accessing information or parts of innovations that uh, will help them to develop a vaccine and that will be stopping people from combining elements of different treatments. What's more, um, even if we were to somehow prove that patents do speed up innovation and i've got real reasons to think that isn't true there's a lot of literature on on the chemical industry before patents and how um in Europe uh, chemical companies were fleeing from one country to another country to get get away from patent laws and how it killed certain companies, it killed certain industries. I can't go through an exhaustive account because I don't have um, time to do that. But um, even if we could somehow demonstrate that patents were um, speeding up innovation, you also have to account for the massive cost of this system from lawyers, court systems, government bureaucrats, uh, litigious claims and all the lobbying money. If if this is producing um, 700 million of innovation for every one billion of costs, it's not actually contributing to to well-being. All of this money, to tie in with the theme of today's podcast, that uh, um, they're spending running around, it could be spent on developing new treatments like a COVID vaccine. Uh, as I said, all these these massive costs of putting through a drug that's already been patented because it's got a new covering or because it's at a slightly second dosage so that they can re-evergreen their patents. Um, they, they, that's money that's not going to develop a COVID vaccine since they're just tinkering around with things that they already had. As I, um, as I mentioned, a very large percentage of treatments, right? Now, it might be even even if we take out the fact that the over the the excessive costs of development are caused by government and compliance with regulations, um, if we could take away these costs without a patent, even if the pharmaceutical company was gaining less profit per drug, they may be gaining more profit overall because they are able to bring more treatments to market they're able to compare their results to those of other people and maybe take someone else's drugs and re-engineer it to have less side effects so that it's less damaging for the human being that takes uh but no no no, you're not allowed to do that you're not allowed to do that so i think it's highly dubious and i can only come back to the point that to say that um Correlation doesn't prove causation. We've seen a lot of progress in the last hundred years and a lot of things we wish we didn't have, like world wars and um, um, the growth, of, the excessive growth, growth of government and, in my case, intellectual property, which I'd, 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 I'd rather we had grown without.
1: Uh, thank you, Anthony. Uh, Folks watching, feel free to... Uh, submit your questions please uh, specify for whom the question uh, to whom the question is directed um, in the meantime I thought maybe uh, I could ask Adam to respond to some of Anthony's points because I, I think Anthony was saying that you haven't haven't entirely engaged with his point about um, evergreening uh, for one thing and you you haven't quite engaged with this point about how IMP um, may be getting in the way of um, improving um, existing treatments. Yeah, so um, here, the important point
2: I think is to remember the foundational and, and, and the point of principles um, because for every, every statement or anecdote or story that he can create about that patents are causing problems, Right. One could find the exact same statements and stories about how property rights and land cause problems, right? You know, Marx famously said, you hungry man is not free. The farmer prevents the peer person from getting food. Their factory owners is, is oppressing the workers because the workers have no choice but to work and therefore they can't get money. And we don't accept those stories as just on their face value. We don't we don't think from anecdote and hypothetical and counterfactual as in, oh well, all we need to do is, you know. Have uh, get rid of property, and the state will wither away, and uh, and and there will be a wonderfulness for everyone in our socialist paradise. Um, you know, we actually recognize that there's actual correlations, historical and economic and otherwise. And as I and as I said, if we applied the if if if, if libertarians are skeptical of IP, apply the exact same standards of proof to real property that they apply for IP. They couldn't advocate for IP because you have the exact same stories of blockades that you know you have the robber barons. You have to explain how robber barons weren't robber barons. No, we don't. We you know, yes, were there potentially some industrialists who behaved improperly with their with their property rights, who beat up workers, who took advantage of people? Yes. But is that fundamentally challenge the underlying principle and insight of what property rights do for society generally and what in prop- that property rights are facilitators of innovation facilitators of commercial exchanges and, and this is the United states' actually contribution the United States was the very first country historically. That took the position that patents were property rights; that they weren't monopolies. Um, this was part of the of the U.S. exceptionalism. Um, you know, <clears throat> in, in fact, they were very explicit about this that when uh, that they were breaking from England in part on this on, on this point, and that therefore people could transact with it in the marketplace. And in the same way that we recognize that property rights, yes, a property owner can exclude someone, can stop someone, can hold up someone. Um, I can use my property right in my house and say no to a commercial development. That an economist will show, and economists have shown, and this is what justifies the use of eminent domain in the United States. Sometimes that will lead to more economic development, and I can still say, no, it's my property, and I want to live here, and that's my right, right? Um, you, you know, you can show have those stories with real property, as you do sometimes with with patents and other types of IP interests, but that doesn't undermine or challenge the underlying um, the underlying principle that property rights drive and facilitate. They are expansions of opportunities. They don't shut people down. When you look right. at,
0: but that—that's the—that's to beg the question, Adam, because that's the point you're asked to demonstrate. I, well, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt.
2: Yeah, no, I no, I get it, and and I I think I have. I mean, in, in identifying the fact that patents, as part of a rule of, system of rule of law with stable political legal institutions, not as privilege grants, not as monopoly grants, as the United States took the approach to. You know, when you look at the explosive growth of the U.S. innovation economy and, and the facilitation of new, even innovative commercial developments, the whole franchise business model was innovated by people like Samuel Morris and others who were licensing their intellectual property to others in order to take advantage of specialization and divisional labor. To, okay. and, and when you watch shows like Shark Tank, right, what's one of the questions that the venture capitalists, venture capitalists who are not government, you know, these are not people who are seeking government handouts. Ask of the people whenever they have an innovation, do you have a patent? Because the property right is the basis for their investment in them. In the same way that your house is your basis for your mortgage.
0: Yes, but they're laboring in a system where patents exist. It would be a different program if they weren't. So, um, the the point that you make is that, you keep on coming back to property rights, and you throw um, intellectual property rights in with the the right to own land or a factory. And um, the thing is, intellectual property is incompatible with property rights because if I've got a printer here, I can't use my own damn printer to print what I want because a government official is going to come in the window and say that I'm violating a law. And um, so the, the um Actually, and how does anyone even know in the lab in Russia if they're they're, um, infringing on someone's supposed property or right or not when they're trying to develop a similar treatment to what the people in the factory in India are? If they develop the treatments independently, where does this right come from to say that you cannot do that? I I just can't under... First of all, I I can't admit that. that...
2: Point. This is and one of the misunderstandings. You, a person in Russia, can't violate an intellectual property right in India. The, the, the intellectual property, just like all property rights, are national. Um, okay. So, if, so if you come up well, with I mean, that, Russia, that only goes to
0: say that now, only goes. Now, we,
2: now, countries can enter into treaties with each other, okay. which they do, just like with their real property, and say you need to respect our property rights in our country, just okay. like you respect yours in your country. But that's a but that's an overlay on top of what is already purely domestic protection of the property rights of their, okay. uh, people who are accountable to, in that jurisdiction only.
0: Okay, so I apologize for my mistake in that area. Okay. This is not my area of specialization. Mm-hmm. Just move the example from um, to one, one lab in the west coast of America and one lab on the east coast. Um, it still seems like a gross yeah. injustice. And secondly, to say that, oh, they, um, they, just, uh, they, they, they vary from country to country just shows how arbitrary the whole concept of intellectual property is. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I once again, I can't own this pen only in America, but not in India. It's, it's really, um, it really makes it look sound a little bit silly. Um, well, so, no, I, I mean, that, that, that's so again, remove intellectual from your statement.
2: And okay. it applies just as equally to all other property rights. Property rights are defined differently in India than they are in Russia, than they are in the United States. That doesn't make property arbitrary. It means that there is, a, there is a legal component of defining it. And we would hope that countries, they don't today, but we would hope, right, that countries would recognize what is fundamentally what property should serve. And they would, they would therefore recognize and uni, adopt uniform protections. But, I mean, they don't because people have volition and choice and they create different countries and different regimes and, that are unjust in various capacities, and they define them differently. Um, but, the, but the ultimately, the, you know, and, I can re- and you're hypothetical about the researchers, you know, it applies to the same. Two people have invested, you know, 200 years ago, invested what would to, in today's equivalence be hundreds of millions of dollars to get their ships and to sail at the exact same time to new land, America. And they don't know who, who the other person is doing it. And the one ship arrives one day before the other ship. And, you know, don't right. say, oh, but, this, sh- this is, this is so, unha- The they, they, the person who arrived first can't get, the, doesn't shouldn't have the property right in the land just because they happen arbitrarily to arrive first. That was the arbitrariness of the winds and of the ocean. Right. Things of that well, sort. Uh, I think
0: it's a, so, it's not a, a winner. Winners take all, all situation in the, um, I mean, the second ship can go a bit North and claim some land, but, but the, point is is, but the point is, is the point is,
2: that, by the way, you can do that in intellectual property. So this is one of the really cool things about the U.S. innovation and in intellectual property is that patents are published, and the reason why they're published is for several reasons. Is that you can do so that people can can do what we call designering. You can make they're not economic monopolies, um, uh, in any sense of the term, because people create competing products. You know, the, I like to say is a joke, kind of. You know, first there was uh, first there was um, uh, you know the um. <clears throat> Um, uh, oh, no, oh, it's not. I just lost my joke. You know, first there was the, the, you know, the male uh, uh, erectile dysfunction uh, pill. And then there was a competing product that came out a couple years later that didn't infringe the patent. Uh, because they were able to develop a competing product, because the, the patent doesn't protect the idea. I know we say that colloquially, and lawyers do and everything, but that's just a colloquialism. It's actually not what the law does. You're only protected in the actual in, in, innovation and invention you, that you created. It has to be new. It has to be non-obvious. It, it has to be useful. Um, and 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 that leaves open a lot of alternatives. And in fact, this is what you see in the, in the biopharmaceutical industries are vibrant. Competition with competing products and services, um, and competing drugs, um, <clears throat> and part of this is driven by the the disclosure mechanism of the patent system. Even patent applications are now dis- uh, disclosed even before patents issue. Um, and you know, but the but the rec- but the point is, is that and and I want to emphasize this is that you know we can argue over counterfactuals, but the point is you can't prove a counterfact. You can no longer prove a counterfactual than I can. And sure is, sure And these but these the argument you get into with with the statists and 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 collectivists is they always want to say well you know it would be paradise on earth if we had if we, sure, if we but had but communism mm-hmm. and I, get,
0: I don't think I don't think it's a fair analogy. Sorry guys because, let me let me let me just sorry, pause just you there a I, little bit before I before I before what, sorry, could I just have, what, have a moment yeah. to make a point Yeah um sure. one one thing is with your Shep analogy the point is would more people be likely to sail, to set sail knowing it was a winner-take-all scenario or not? This debate is about whether intellectual property helps or hinders the development of a vaccine. I would say that it hinders it because there's a lot of... Um, Companies that simply will not put up the goods under the spectre of being pipped by the post and not being allowed to bring that treatment to, to the market. So um, with that point, I would like to take questions since we've we've been given our marching orders.
1: Thank you. Uh, thank you, Anthony. Um, we have a question for you, Anthony, from uh, Nanyan Zhang, uh, who asks, how do people trade technologies on the market without intellectual property rights ownership and the corresponding protection how would that I, actually work
0: i don't actually under fully understand the question i'm afraid to say um as as far as i can say see it say what you see is what you get if you can um build a item of technology uh, you can trade that item of technology but it can stop anyone from copying it i would think that i mean And and I'm not really sure what she's talking about, but I remember earlier on during the debate, I thought to say, you know, I find it hard to believe that um, we wouldn't have better technology and even better laptops and phones than we have just now if um, there weren't just a small number of companies operating in that sphere, big companies operating in that sphere um, because of intellectual property. So I guess... um, you'd have to do the best you can with what you have i suppose right. is, is is the only answer if she can clarify the question a little bit more mm-hmm. then, I
1: then mean, maybe i, can I get, give up uh, uh, for, for example i mean i'm 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 thinking um, in in a world without ip um, companies could still try to uh, hold on to their company secrets couldn't they if they have a particular production process um, would, would KFC, for example, be able to uh, keep, keep its, what was it, 12, 15? Uh, 11 herbs and spices. Secrets, that's spices, a, yeah, uh, secrets. Secret, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, I would, mean well, companies... Look, I mean,
2: this, is what, this is what happened before, before intellectual property existed, right? How did companies and organizations keep their information protected? That, that was valuable, that was commercial. Well, that was the guild system. Um, you know, which, uh, uh, which was, you know, not a system that facilitated economic growth or, or facilitated actual commercial exchanges. I mean, and the guild system was the only way that they could protect their interests and rights. I mean, this is um, one of the ways in which IP systems actually promote and facilitate economic, gro- uh, economic growth is through the actual publication and, and disclosure of this information that didn't exist under the guilt system if guilt. So guilds, killed people. They, if they, if they, uh, if they disclosed information to other people historically. So, um, so, you know, uh, in this, I, I, you know, I think one of the, I think what the questioner was asking was, is that, you know, uh, the point I, I referenced in my opening remarks that um, when I teach property, you know, property is not just you get to own it something it's 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 a set of rights of exclusive control and you can have overlapping rights and we create people who have future interests and i can give a partial interest in something you if you if you if you rent a home if you rent your current home or apartment you have a partial right that's been conferred upon you by by the by the property owner now you have overlapping property rights in that in that piece of uh, asset that is now owned and um and this is what property facilitates and and but those are all what we think of as, com- as contracts. In fact, most people before they go to law school in the United States, they think leases are contracts and they're not, they're actually property interests in Anglo-American law. Um, they're estates and land and so, excuse me. Uh, and, you, and this is, so I think what she's asking is, well, if you don't have this kind of ability of defining exclusively how you can control something, how, what is then the basis for people to enter into free market exchanges? Because if you can't say no at the end of the day, if I I can't get an injunction against someone trespassing on my house, then that person is not gonna ask permission to come onto my property. They'll just come in, they'll be a squatter.
0: Right, well, um, I I, uh, resist the analogies to physical property for the same reason that I come to again and again. Intellectual property, is not excludable it's like if you have an idea and someone else has the same idea um, you still have that idea whereas if someone trespasses on your property then you don't effectively own the house unless you have um well mm-hmm. i mean you know you they don't get a set you don't get a second version of the house mm-hmm. so that um, i i just want to that's just more for people listening to know i really really resist those examples i don't think they are illustrative of the debate we're having. So, I guess yeah, people people can make sign contracts with their staff to make sure that they they've they've agreed not to disclose information, uh, and they can try and keep it as hush hush for as long as possible. And I don't think anyone can reverse engineer a pill overnight or anything like that. But fundamentally, the intellectual property. As an institution, is going to infringe on your right to use your own lab, your own equipment that you bought, your own ingredients, uh, and people are going to come and say, "No, no, no, sorry, you can't research that on that uh, with your own property." It makes your a- actual property no longer your own property, and I, I can't see how that is going to. Um, how that's going to lead to innovation. Like, you know, imagine I could um, create that pill in my own house, in my own, like Dexter's Lab, that cartoon I used to like when I was a kid, you know, um, for my own child to take it, uh, if I, I had the know-how to do it. And no one knew. Shh. Is it a violation of someone else's intellectual property or not? Like, wh- you, where's the line here? I'm not allowed to do what I'm, what I... What I want to do with property that's supposedly mine. Um, I know I've strayed a little bit far from the the COVID thing, but I just come back to the same point again and again, which is people aren't going to um, aren't going to risk um, that they're. they're in fact, they're not allowed to use their own property to research a COVID vaccine, or or at least they're significantly deterred by the prospect of someone pipping them to the post. Um Y- oh yeah, is
1: there another question? Yeah. yeah, we have another question from uh, Nadia, um, who's it's it's for whoever wants to answer it. Um, uh, she's asking, uh, what advice would you give to businesses and um, organizations that want to protect their valuable intellectual property during this pandemic? Um, I think perhaps she's referring to the fact that we are currently in a in a crisis, and in a serious crisis, there's a tendency for people to trample over any norm, rule, law, or principle that gets in the way of a perceived solution to the crisis.
0: If only they would do that for uh, minimum wage laws and labor laws and all the things stopping people. Well, you'd have to
1: convince people that they're in the way. Yes. I, I yeah. I
2: mean, if, if, you know, if we could just show like that how the FDA is the one responsible for there not being in the United States, at least and not enough treatments and not enough drugs yes. and not enough, not enough masks, that's the real problem. Uh, yes. You know, and these excessive government regulations that actually are killing people right now. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, we usually argue, well, you know, these, this has an impact socially and in the long run, this harms people, but like, there are actually, this is leading to a body count now. Um, and unfortunately, you're right. I mean, and as Anthony recognized too, right, you know, crises uh, uh, are often the basis and justification for, uh, for expanding government power over people's lives. There's a very infamous statement by uh, the chief of staff for former President uh, uh, Obama in the United States. He said in 2011, never let a crisis go to waste. Um, and, uh, and he, and he literally meant what he, what that sounds like. He said, you know, you, we should use a crisis to expand our power. Um, and, and he was very, and that's why it's a very famous or infamous, I believe, statement.
1: Um, I saw, I saw a comment, um, I forgot from whom, uh, stating that instead of changing the world, what COVID is doing is accelerating the tendencies, the patterns that were already there. So the uh, the tensions between the U.S. and China, um, people uh, working online more, the death of uh, the traditional movie theater, and so on and so forth. Um, I wonder, is this going to be a further blow to intellectual property rights? Because I think intellectual property is already in trouble, thanks to well, thanks to China. Um,
2: Go ahead, Anthony.
0: <laughs> no, I was just saying thanks to me. <laughs> very, very unlikely. Not with uh, uh, intellectual heavyweights like yourself, Adam, to defend it.
2: Oh, you are all too kind. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, it could potentially be a blow um, because, insofar as uh, countries, especially the United States, for instance, you know, the, there's been a lot of government officials who have said we are, you know, going to take, we're going to. If you invest billions of dollars and, and thousands of man, uh, man hours of labor to come up with a new cure, we're just going to take it from you because we're in a crisis. I mean, they've been very blunt about this and very open about this. Well, you know, if you say to a farmer, right, you know, hey, go ahead, produce your crops. But if there's a famine, we're just going to take your crops from you. Um, or if we think that there are some people who are happen to be hungry, who are starving in the city at the moment. And so we have a crisis and we're going to take your crops from you without your permission. I mean, is that farmer going to farm? Um, you know, is that farmer going to say, all right, great, I'm going to keep farming. Um, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. No, I mean, I mean the moment you say to people, I will use any, any what I define as a crisis. Um, we are in a crisis now, but I mean, we are not in something like where the world is collapsing. I mean, uh, I mean, COVID-19 is a serious illness, but it's not the plague you know, which, you know, killed, what, 30% of the entire European population? And, um, you know, it's not, you know, uh, you know it's not um, SARS, uh, which, you know, the, the severe, uh, you know, uh, advanced respiratory syndrome, which, which had, a, I think, a 12% uh, death rate, um, you know, as opposed to a 0.5% death rate, which is what is appearing, we have with, um, with uh, uh, COVID-19. Um, so if, you know, what they say, we're, however we define a crisis, um, we're, you know, all bets are off rights of Liberty in the United States where we've locked down, you know, rights of property, we're going to shut your businesses down rights of intellectual property. You know, the, the lesson, the, the moral hazard from that is clear. Um, you know, and the lesson from that is, well, then why should I produce if, if what I ultimately create for myself and live my life for is only at the behest of my superiors in the government.
0: Uh, Anthony Well, I'd agree that under the current um system when this is done kind of um, spontaneously um that might have a negative effect, but what we're talking about is the <clears throat> fundamental point of what the culture should be like, and people will have different expectations when they know that they can't be expected to be awarded a monopoly on an in- innovation and they can't stop other people from copying their ideas and improving upon their ideas. Um, so with with that point, yeah, there, there's huge amounts of money involved in bringing a drug to market. As we've discussed, a lot of that is because of the regulatory structure. If the regulatory structure was not such mm-hmm then there would be more companies operating in the field because more companies would be able to and that would be a better world because we'd be more likely to get um, a treatment for this faster.
1: Thank you. Um, There's another question from Irida. Uh, She's wondering, um, I, I, I think it's it will be more of a question for Adam because this, this might be a question about where you would set the limit to, to what can be patented, to, to what can count as, as IP. So she's wondering what she, think, what she would think about a person uh, seeking trademark protection over, uh, for example, COVID or coronavirus. I think that the, <laughs> the, the very words. Yeah, yeah. We have to pay, would we have to pay 10 cents every time we said it?
2: <laughs> right. Um, no, that's a great question. Where do you um, draw the line? Yeah. line drawing yeah, that's is really a good important. question. It's very, it's, it's very important in in all property rights. Um, in fact, uh, uh, 99% of what I teach every year in my in my property course in my law school is is about where you draw the lines because the property rights are just the the rights in the use of something and and so we often think of in fences and things of that as draw, as defining the boundaries of the property right. But that's only in one one area and one small aspect of how we define property rights. Um, And and so, and this is a big area in IP, right? Um, Because you should only get protection for the thing that you've created and and, uh, what makes it not a monopoly, um, what has shifted it out of the monopoly were the evolution of the creativity and innovation requirements or invention requirements. And it it has to be something new uh, in the patent context and then they added useful and even has to be non-obvious so something could be completely new but if it's totally obvious the example i use when i teach patent law is, if someone invents the bicycle which they did and they got a patent on it and then someone invents the tricycle well that's obvious that's not that's not deserving of a patent but um in trademark um you have similar types of restrictions you can't trademark generic terms um you can't trade, uh, and you can't even trademark descriptive terms Um, unless they acquire additional um, uh, value and meaning through your productive labors as a company in selling trades and services in the marketplace. Um, So a term like COVID-19 or or other scientific terms would be deemed to be either generic or purely descriptive and not trademarkable, unless you define a very, very limited, narrow commercial context in which you were, you know, potentially using it, but, um, and you would have to do it in that context. So you have to create what's called goodwill, um, uh, that's a legal concept for the valuable business reputation that companies create in selling products and services in the marketplace, as represented by their products and services with their consumers. It's a legal concept; it's an abstraction. It developed in the nineteenth century, not around actually, not around uh, IP, but because it's a broader concept. It applies in corporate law. It applies in bankruptcy. It applies in all sorts of areas. Um, it's you know it's it's the value that exists in a in a com- in a commercial enterprise that is engaging in those incredible activities and in selling goods and services in the marketplace, and that there's a value to that that's distinct from the actual particular values of the goods and services. In fact, when companies are bought and sold, um, goodwill oftentimes con- constitutes well more than half of the total price that the, one company is paying for another company for purchasing another company. Um, <clears throat> And, uh, and that's really the, that, uh, a broader point too, is that IP doesn't block in any m- in a dip more way than property rights and land or property rights and water or property rights and other things block people, which they do. I can say no to a trespasser. I can, or if I own, if I own property rights in a stream, which ex- had existed for time immemorial, I could say no to someone who wants to fish on that stream. That's certainly true. Um, <clears throat> but what they actually facilitate, and you know, this is Adam Smith's incredible insight and Schumpeter's insights and others is that, and the Austrian economists, as well, is they actually facilitate, they're a platform for engaging, they're foundation for cooperative exchanges in the marketplace. And studies consistently show, just in the United States alone, that, you know four, five, six trillion dollars a year uh, is generated in commercial exchanges between and amongst companies, including in the biopharmaceutical industry. It's it's actually not true that biopharmaceutical companies want to just keep their pills and treatments to themselves. They engage in extensive amount of commercial interactions with other people. And I know this not because I'm an academic or specialist, I know this because I wanted to learn more about this. I wanted to understand this industry. I didn't just want to kind of pontificate about it, you know, and, you know, from, you know, up in the clouds as, as a professor, I actually wanted to learn about it. So I actually started talking to people who work in the industry. It's like, well, what do you do? You know, how are you okay. deploying your products and services in the marketplace? And, um, and, you know, and this is why, you know, you learn such things. Like there's 101 experimental vaccines currently being tested for COVID, which is on the foundation of a market structure and uh that exists that has been facilitated by the investments and the market developments that have been possible by property rights the patents that have existed that anthony's saying we shouldn't have um you know the burden of proof is on him where would those 101 vaccines come from if we hadn't if they didn't have that structure that was created by by the us stepping in in 1980 and saying you can patent these types of innovations
1: okay thank you guys we've uh
2: Anthony, do you want, like, a two-minute response? I just... Final final response. I shouldn't be allowed to click on that.
0: I just want to say that (laughs) I totally reject the idea that um, the patents don't block in the same way that... um, In any way that regular property rights don't block it's true that um, you can block someone from swimming in your stream but what if you develop a new way of boating on your stream that's going to interfere with who i let boat on my stream if i am lucky enough to own one so yes 100 um companies are um, working on a vaccine that's great um, should only one of them prevail should only one of them be able to market their research um, once they succeed? If someone independently comes up with the same idea, you know, it's kind of like uh, when someone goes, uh, "Has that chair got your name on it?" You know, that idea's not got that idea's got not got your name on it. It just exists somewhere in your in your head. And to and to say that someone else can't then use their own uh, their own ideas, I just can't see. I mean, we would really need a counterfactual to see, um, you know, a a world earth too, where we didn't institute intellectual property. But I think um, I've, I've given good reason, I've given good reasons to think that that's not the only way of looking at it. And people will naturally come to their own conclusions and give us give us both feedback thank you very much adam you've been very lovely to talk to and given me plenty of food for thought and um, and i hope that i hope that i didn't just um say a bunch of stuff that you've heard before
2: oh no, no this was really great anthony i really enjoyed it i hope that we had, we, we should do this again definitely it was fantastic
0: uh, and I, I, enjoy,
2: I did, and, and I and you did and you did come up with some new points I had heard before. You made, you did make me think on my feet a bit. I enjoy that.
0: Okay, great, great, great for the grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much for having both of us. Thank you. Uh, thank you to both of
1: you. This has been really great. You both gave us you 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 both um, uh, raised some really interesting points. Uh, some from very different points of view. Some from uh, intersecting points of view. Um, and Anthony, good luck with um, your pursuit of uh, getting to own your own stream. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard it's the happiest day in the man's
0: life when he gets to <laughs> own his own stream, so maybe that's votes. I don't we know. can host uh, we, uh, we can host, we can host the next debate from a boat on the stream. That well, is the dream. Drag- well, right. That, as that, long as you advance now, the boat. I
2: now, and I am now incentivized to come up with a new method of boating on Anthony Street. That <laughs> 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 I'll get a patent on.
1: <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank uh, you all. Really great.